This is Leewood Online, a ministry of Leewood Baptist Church, located in the Kansas City area. For more information about us, visit us online at www.leewoodbaptist.com. Good morning, I'm Rob Overton. Today we're going to be reading from Matthew 5, 21 through 26. This is on page 810 in the Pew Bible. So again, it's Matthew 5, 21 through 26, and it's on page 810. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Let me pray for us one more time. Jesus, thank you for loving us. Thanks for making a way for us to be reconciled to you. And thanks for not just speaking to the issues of the heart, but making a way for those issues of our heart to actually be dealt with. So I just want to pray for capacity this morning to see ourselves the way you see us. Because if we do and we look to you for what you've accomplished for us, it will change us, it will free us, it will, will heal us, it'll correct us, it'll help us. It would actually even save us. So God, would you help us see ourselves the way you see us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. I want you to think about the last time that you were angry. And maybe you go, okay, I don't get angry. Okay, okay. All right, so think about the last time that you were annoyed. Think about the last time you clenched your jaw. Think about the last time you just chose to walk away rather than say something. Think about the last time that you just felt like you'd been violated. Think about that image that you've seen replayed over and over again of somebody doing something to some other human that just should not be done and how that feels inside. What is it for you? Is it some post you've read where your view is put in such a straw man way and then easily dismantled? It just seems like anybody who holds your beliefs is foolish. Is that, is that what makes you angry? Is it stuff that happens to you in traffic or at work? Is it with your parents? Is it with your children? Is it inside your, is it inside your home, inside your marriage? Is it stuff that happens in politics? Is it stuff that, that happens kind of in your neighborhood? Is it happening with COVID? Is it happening with, what, what is it? Just think for a second. Think of the time that you felt furious and maybe it never left your lips or maybe think of the time that you wept and had to go ask forgiveness. Like what is it that makes you angry? Just think for a second. What I love about the scriptures is that they are brutally honest. They invite us to be honest with ourselves about 
what's inside of us. And Jesus in this section on the Sermon on the Mount is going after our hearts to actually give us the good news that Jesus didn't just die and didn't just welcome us to give us better rules to follow. He came to actually change our hearts so that we could follow after Jesus and be transformed. And to do that, we have to come face to face with what's happening on the inside. The followers of Jesus get to and have to own what's happening on the inside because Jesus did not just come to die to make you better behaved. He came to actually set you free. He came to transform you from the inside out. And now we should stop for a second and say, hey, pastor, aren't there like good forms of anger? Like, isn't some of those things that you name, like, aren't those the kinds of angers that we should feel? And we should say, absolutely. The anger itself by itself is not necessarily a negative emotion. I was talking to one of our members this week, and she was sharing with me a book she was reading, and the book was talking about anger. And she said, it's the most powerful of emotions. It's actually the fastest emotion. Anger says, this is wrong and something should be done about that. So there's a sense in which all of us should actually be more angry than we are. When we look around the injustice of the world and the way people are treated, we think about the scarcity of resources, we think about things that happen to marginalized people, we think about abuse, we think about neglect. We should actually be more angry. God himself is an angry God. However, he's never mixed with the kind of entitlement and selfishness and pettiness and myopicness that we actually are marked by. Jesus is not dealing with that form of righteous anger that we should make a caveat for. He's dealing with the kind of anger that we're all way more familiar with, the kind of anger that we display and has been displayed to us that comes from this sense of somebody actually doing harm or taking from us or harming us or us moving towards somebody with such force it causes wreckage in these relationships. That's the kind of anger that he's dealing with. So yes, there is a kind of righteous anger, but Jesus is dealing with stuff inside of our heart. And remember what he's doing in this section is he's showing to us the kind of righteousness we have to have that far exceeds that of the Pharisees. So we were in the first section or the section right above this last week. So verse 20 of chapter 5 of Matthew He ends this introduction by saying, For I tell you that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you'll never enter into the kingdom of heaven. So what he does is not say, all right, this is the new rules. Here's how you do it. It used to be on the outside. Now you kind of go after the inside. That's not what he's saying. What he's doing is saying there's a kind of righteousness you need that's more than you can earn through your outward behavior. And we took some time last week to walk through some Old Testament passages that Jesus said he came to fulfill, passages that said that he was going to give us his righteousness, that he was going to account to us his righteousness, God himself, to sinful people, the the prophecies of a new covenant that God was going to come and take our hearts of flesh, our hearts of stone, our hearts of stone, and, and give us hearts of flesh so that we could actually move towards God and respond to him and love him. We talked about that last week, and so when we come now into these six illustrations, Jesus is not saying, all right, let me ratchet it up and raise the bar. Here's what you have to accomplish. What he's doing is inviting us to see the depth of our brokenness so that we can celebrate and rejoice in what God has done for us and in that space actually be changed. So we've been talking for several weeks about how to read the Bible, and I've kind of given you these questions. If you should ask, what does this passage tell me about God? What does it tell me about myself? And what does it tell me about Jesus? And then last week we used this little diagram, this little diagram of a cross chart. 
And I went through it pretty fast, but let me just revisit this. This comes from World Harvest Missions. It's, it's not in the Bible, but it actually describes for us what we see in the Bible that is really, really helpful. And it's this idea that as I engage with who God is, my awareness of Him changes and my awareness of myself changes. So real quick review. So this is a timeline of your life. So it's birth on the far left, and then it's 100 years old on the far right. And that time where the lines diverge, you see this awareness of God's holiness and an awareness of our sinfulness. That's the two lines. And so you see a little arrow there saying conversion. If you'll trust Jesus for the gap that you see between God's holiness and your sinfulness, then Christ becomes your sacrifice, your atonement, the one who actually makes you right with God. That's what we do when we're Christians, right? We're not earning our righteousness. We're not doing enough. We don't see the gap and say, okay, I better grab my bootstraps and do more. What we do is we see the gap between who God is and who we are, and this little cross represents us trusting Jesus. Now, it's an awareness chart, so it's not that God gets more holy or we get more sinful, but as time goes on, as I read God's Word, as I'm in community, as I walk with other people, I start to see more of who God is. My awareness of God's holiness grows, and my awareness of my sinfulness grows, and that that happens we see is our awareness of or appreciation of what Christ has done for us also grows. So the idea is the longer I get, the more overwhelmed I am with God's holiness and the more obvious I am and aware of my own brokenness and the more I feel rested and grateful for what Christ has done. So I told you guys, for me, those lines diverged when I was about 12 years old. I grew up around the things of church, but didn't have a relationship with Jesus at all. Someone walked me through the book of Romans and showed me my sin for the first time, and that God's holiness was such that my sin deserved to be punished. So I was 12 years old. I had a category of like talking back to my parents. I had categories of looking at things I shouldn't look at. I had a category of, of feeling selfish, but, but I had no idea like the levels of brokenness. Right? I didn't know like when I first got married some 20 years later that I was capable of like doing good things to manipulate somebody to get something from them. Husbands and gigs up, right? So like to unload the dishwasher so that she pays you back sometime later in the evening and then get furious when she doesn't pay you back. That whole awareness, what happens at 22, my awareness of my own brokenness went way past just like cursing to go, I'm actually capable of doing good things in manipulative ways. I need Jesus to die for that. I need, I need atonement for that. And as I read God's word, I don't just look at the big 10. I see who God is and what he's like and how he labors with people and, and the utter holiness of who he is, right? So at 22, my understanding of my need for Jesus grew. And now at 44, it's even, it's even bigger to, to pastor a church and love people and realize there's places where I hurt people. And maybe I mean to, and maybe I don't, depending on the day, and there's forgiveness and repentance for all that, but to realize that I, as a pastor, can actually try to move towards somebody, but maybe move towards them too forcefully and do them harm, or or be impatient, even while I'm calling them towards holiness, I can be impatient, right? So it's really complicated. It's not that I'm getting more sinful. What happens is I'm more aware of my sinfulness, and simultaneously more aware of God's holiness, and that, as that happens, I'm more aware of what Jesus actually died for. Kind of make sense? Okay, here's the great news. This isn't just an awareness chart. There's an invitation in this. Because the more aware I am of what Jesus has done, it invites me to change. Because there's things that I'm trusting other than Jesus, because I don't think he's going to satisfy or going to supply my need or going to take care of me. And I keep looking to other stuff. That's what sin is, looking to something else to set me free or make me okay. But if I see Jesus as more and more beautiful, I'm invited to trust him in a way that actually 
transforms me, right? So it's not just an awareness chart, it's an invitation as well, right? So the next slide, we talked last week though, like our lives aren't that perfect. We actually sometimes level off our awareness and we think we could perform or we pretend that we're not that bad. And when we do that, when we round off the edges, when we think we're better than most people, like when we look horizontally for our standard of holiness rather than vertically, we'll actually lower that line We'll lower the awareness, again, not God's actual holiness or our actual sinfulness, but, but our awareness of that. And when we do that, we shrink the cross, right? So Jesus maintains kind of a small space in our life, and we still feel the gap. What's fascinating about this is you still feel the gap here. You're just going to fill it in with something, justifying yourself, trying harder. You're going to fill it in with shame or guilt. You're going to fill that in somewhere, or you could open it all the way up and let Jesus engage it, right? So we have a habit of performing and pretending, and we said that God's Word is what pushes those lines out. Staying in God's Word, being in community, is what helps us see our hearts and see God for who He is. And then we just said, hey, our lives are not linear like that. They actually look more like this. This is what our awareness actually looks like. There's this varied shift of our understanding of who God is. And so if you got the job that you were praying for, man, I bet that line goes up and you're grateful for who God is. If you were praying for something and it didn't happen and it hurt you, maybe your conscious awareness of God's holiness maybe dips a little bit. When, when you've had a fallout or blood, you, you broke sobriety after 27 days, maybe you're more aware of your brokenness. But maybe you're crushing it and it's been a 90-day streak and so your awareness of your sinfulness might be on the rise. And what that means for us is we have this dynamic experience of our brokenness and God's holiness and what Christ has done for us. But the same is true here in God's word and being in community is what pushes those lines out so that I have less of this like dizzying experience of being so confused and I'm more and more consistently seeing Jesus as bigger. Make sense? All right, those three questions. What does it tell me about God? Top line. What does it tell me about myself? Bottom line. How does it point me to Jesus? Right, it elevates who God is, it exposes my sinfulness, and it invites me to trust Christ. That's kind of where we were last week. And so what's happening in these next six sessions of anger and lust and divorce and oaths and retaliation and loving your enemies, Jesus is going to run us through this cross chart. He's going to help us see like how holy God is and how broken we actually are, and he's going to invite us to trust him and see him, right? As we read these passages, these are not new rules you have to keep if you're going to come into the kingdom. They are a demonstration or a picture or a beautiful display of what God actually offers you as he wants to engage the inner person of your life and set you free. Jesus is not now laying a crushing load on you, like, all right, you heard it was on the outside, but I'm telling you it's way worse than that. You have to be perfect on the inside, too. I mean, that would just not, like, help at all. That would actually make us feel more distant from God. It would push us farther and farther away. What he does, though, is he says, there's a kind of righteousness you need that can only come from a transformed heart, that can only come if God takes our hearts of flesh or hearts of stone and gives us a heart of flesh, right? It can only happen as we see Jesus for who he is and this transforming work of what he came to do. And so what I want to do is walk through this anger passage. We're going to do this week and next week because I want us to see in this space like the kind of redemption that we need and the kind of righteousness that is available to us. And this is a massive invitation for us, right? Because awareness leads us towards action, 
to see God for who he is, to see what's possible for me, to not feel stuck in this endless loop of anger and insult and entitlement, but actually be free from that in a way that I could actually move towards reconciliation gives you incredible hope as you think about where you find yourself in your relationship. So we're going to slow down. We're going to spend two weeks on this passage. And what I want to do today is basically talk about the pattern of this passage. And then I want to talk about the problem that the passage names for us. And then we'll talk about what is the root issue that it actually points to. Now, let me just a quick caveat. If you're connecting some dots with COVID surveys and issues in the news and me talking about outrage and anger, you might be going, hey, this is really like low-hanging fruit for like a, a COVID survey. I promise it's not. Well, I mean, it is, but I promise we didn't like orchestrate it that way. So here's the deal. This is the beauty of preaching through expositionally through the scriptures, just going verse by verse through the passages. Sometimes you, you nail it where you hit a passage that feels really relevant to your cultural moment, right? So I actually want to title this like anger, outrage, and our cultural moment because you live inside this text, your, your Twitter feed and your newsreel and the way you engage with your friends is full of words like fool and insults and outrage and anger. And, and man, we don't have to look very far in the news, too, to see actual murder, right? Our world is actually being described in this passage. So all the more good news that Jesus offers us something different as we look to him, a different kind of righteousness that's not just aimed at dealing with the outside or the inside, but being transformed in a way that we get to follow him, right? So this is not low-hanging COVID fruit, although I would encourage you to apply what we're talking about to how you see the situation and people that are different than you, because I think you've probably called people fools. You've probably dished out some insults around how someone sees the issue of COVID-19 and their response and regulations. I bet you there's been places where some of this is going to feel very familiar, Right, because those jagged lines just describes 2020 and the beginning of 21. Like everything is kind of crazy for us right now. And so to stop and say, all right, God, would you deal with my heart? I want to invite you into that space, right? And because, man, because it's freedom, because it's not a new burden of all the things. This is not a new list of ways that you've failed. So you walk out of here with shame. It's an invitation to you to hear, oh, that's why Jesus died. So, so let the bottom line drop a little bit this morning. Right, right. Let the Spirit of God speak to you. Be open to that. Don't justify your anger. Don't justify your frustration. Be like, well, that person is a fool. That's why I called them a fool. Like, stop for a second and go, hey, what if there's something God wants to say to you about the way you see yourself and see other people? That if you saw it more clearly, you would ah, see Jesus more clearly as well. And you could actually stop trying to justify yourself and stop feeling so entitled. And you could move towards people with compassion. So let yourself get on the hook this morning because it's not about hooking you and then beating you with shame. It's hooking you so that you can see the freedom and forgiveness that Christ came to offer. So, so to help us see that, just go this first pattern, right? Look with me back in verse 21 of Matthew 5. It's on page 810 if you're in the Pew Bible. Here, here is the, the pattern that we see. Uh, he starts with the outward. He says this, you've heard that it was said to those of old, right? This is the way it's always been. This is the tradition. This is what the Torah has said. You shall not murder, right? And last week we said some of these six will be straight quotes from the Old Testament. Some will be some quotes and some traditions. Some will be just traditions. This is a quote from the Big Ten, right? From the Ten Commandments. You've heard it said, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable for judgment. So, so he stops and says, hey, let's talk about what's always been the case on the outside. 
And what Jesus does in the next pattern, he says, okay, but I want you to know it's not just that. There are expressions of this outer thing that happen on the inside, right? So it goes outer to inner in verse 22. But I say to you, not not a new law, not a ratcheted up law, but more understanding, right? Farther dropping of that line of awareness of your brokenness. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother is liable to judgment, So this outer expression of murder, all of us would agree. Now he says, hey, there's a way that anger matches that murder inside your heart. And then he keeps going. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Okay, you should stop and go, man, that feels pretty exaggerated or fairly intense. Because you call people fools and idiots all the time. And so this is actually saying, hey, what you're doing is actually so far, it's like murder, right? The reason why the death penalty sometimes deserves capital punishment is because it's, it's marring the imago Dei, the, someone made in the image of God. It's dehumanizing people. And he's saying there's a way that your insults and the words that you say actually dehumanize folks. We've done it in sanitary ways. There's cousins of murder that are like insults, but they're all rooted in this judgment of people. And he says those are out of bounds. So he goes outside, he goes inside, And now he says another way, or here's what would happen in the kingdom of God, or here's what could take place if your heart was transformed. Look in verse 23, and notice that word, so. So he says, you've heard it said, but, he goes lower to the heart, and now he says, so, if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift, therefore, at the altar and go. And first be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly, another illustration, with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you've paid the last penalty. All right, so outer regulations, inner invitation, and now another way. What he's saying is, hey, different than this outrage culture, different than you insulting people, different than you murdering people in your heart, different than you actually feeling like people are entitled to you treating them poorly, God offers another way with a transformed heart for you to actually be reconciled to people, for you to move out of the space of being the judge and actually engage somebody as a fellow human where you could be reconciled. And he just says, hey, here's the truth. If you were to live into what you could accomplish in just your flesh, you'll never actually pay enough. You'll never actually be able to accomplish it. It always will outweigh you. It's too much, he says in verse 26. So there is another offer. There's a way of kingdom redemption and reconciliation that takes our hearts and transforms them. So, so that's the pattern. There's an outward, an inward and then another way. All right, so what's the problem that the passage is pointing to? Quite simply, it's this, that we have a tendency to dehumanize people and to deify ourselves. The problem I think Jesus is addressing is that we dehumanize people. We reduce them down to their ideas or their positions or their actions. We take them at their Twitter face level and we make that who they are. We dehumanize them. And at the same time, to be able to do that, you correspondingly have to deify yourself. It would be like you raise the awareness of who you are and the declining of who they are. Right? You reverse the cross chart in a way that actually is inverted where you're destroyed on the inside. The problem Jesus is addressing is that, that we dehumanize people. We have a way of commodifying them. 
of comparing with them, of competing against them, of, of consuming them. We see people as means to our ends. And to do that, you have to put yourself in some other place. It's fascinating that he ties this to worship and to lawsuits, right? He's saying you put yourself in the spot of God and of judge. There's a worship issue and a judgment issue at the background of this thing because you say to people, I'm God and I judge you as deficient. You're like, hey man, it's just a tweet. I was just like commenting on their tweet. I didn't mean anything by it. What Jesus is going to say is those careless words, they're not unmeant words. You might have meant to be more careful in what you said, but those careful words that leave your lips, you've actually been indulging and coddling and holding on to and rehearsing for a really, really, really long time. Because this is what sin does. Sin deifies us that we're entitled to something and it dehumanizes somebody else as commodities for our own pleasure, advancement, joy, or competition. That is what sin always does. So all of us, since we were born, have been consuming people and putting ourselves in the space of God. So, so, so Jesus is just saying, hey, you've heard it say don't murder anybody, right? And the reason why is because they're made in the image of God. Humanize them, right? Treat them like humans. You don't have the right to take the life of somebody else. And all of us, I think, would agree with that. The reason why murder is so atrocious is it ends somebody's life who's made in the image of God. And now Jesus says, hey, but when you in your own heart are angry with them and you move towards this insult of them and you say of them, fool, you're doing the exact same thing. I don't think these are like elevating. I think there's parallels. I think what he's saying is anger, insults, and calling somebody a fool is what actually deserves judgment. It's what actually puts us in a spot where we should be judged rather than judging other people. It actually makes us not God himself, but actually capable of the judgment of God. There's a parallelism in that space. And so let me just kind of bring you into some of these words to help you understand what he's actually saying. He says this anger that you dish out, that you feel so entitled to because somebody's wronged you, puts you in the space of God. And you actually have been judging them. That's why you feel so justified in your anger. But he wants to say, actually, you're liable of judgment. He flips it around on its head. And then he says, if you call somebody this word insults, and maybe look at a little footnote there, has a number four in the ESV. It'll take you down to the bottom of the page to this word, raka. It means like empty-headed or good for nothing. It's a, it's a contemptuous phrase. It's actually a word that sounds like the noise you make when you're going to hock a loogie. So go, kids, go with, go with me and go like, ha, ha, like that. And he's going, you're saying, same smile, just like it's a, the, the visceral sound I make when I want to spit and hock a loogie when I think about you. That's pretty powerful. He says, hey, this word, this ha, that thing, what I'm doing in that moment is saying you're worthless. The word is empty-headed and good for nothing. To say to another human, you're good for nothing. It doesn't matter if they have a wedding band on their hand that you gave them. When you do that, you are dehumanizing them. It doesn't matter if you gave birth to them. When you do that, you're dehumanizing them. It doesn't matter if they have different color skin than you have. When you do that, you're dehumanizing them. And Jesus is saying in that moment, it's like murder. Why? Because the root issue is the same, saying, I am God, I'm the one who's in charge, and I get to say about you your value and your worth. Who gets to say value and worth? Who gets to actually establish somebody's value? Oh, 
thank God it's not us, right? It's God himself. So to say to somebody, I'm going to determine your value so much so that I'll consume you, I'll compete with you, I'll rank myself against you. In that space, you're deifying yourself and you're dehumanizing them, right? This empty-headed fool, nothing of value, he says. It's actually like the same as premeditated murder because you have rehearsed this idea in your mind that they are not as valuable as you are. And he says this last one here, you fool. Just to say to someone a fool, and you go like, all right, man, that one kind of gets me. Because people are foolish, right? Can't we call a fool a fool? Can't we call a spade a spade? Listen to Dallas Willard on this issue. He says, the fool in biblical language is a combination of stupid perversity and rebellion against God and all that sensible people stand for. That's what a fool is in the Bible. He is willfully perverted, rebellious, knowingly wicked in his own harm. The Old Testament book of Proverbs carefully denotes his soul. The fool, we are told, is arrogant and careless. The fool doesn't care about understanding but only displaying his own heart like a dog that returns to its own vomit a fool repeats his folly over and over and over again to brand someone a fool therefore in this biblical sense is a violation of the soul so devastating of such a great harm that as jesus saw it would be justified justifiably consigning somebody to the smoldering garbage dump of gehenna which is that word for hell it combines all that is evil in anger as well as in contempt. It's not possible for people with such attitudes towards others to live in the movements of God's kingdom for they are totally out of harmony with it. For God to give a diagnosis to somebody of a fool is very different than you out of frustration to say of a person you are not worthy. Jesus is aiming at dehumanizing people and deifying ourselves right it's a call away from entitlement towards reconciliation so the bible speaks of this a ton of places right our words actually reflect what's inside of our hearts so so a passage like james 3 this is the brother of jesus in james chapter 3 there's a section here where he talks about the power of words it's like a, a forest fire that's released from the flames of the tongue and he says no human being can tame the tongue for it's a, a restless evil full of deadly poison And with it, we bless our Father and our Lord. And with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be. Because when we dehumanize somebody, we make of them simple objects. Right? They're people to be defeated or to be used or to be compared with or to consume. And in that space, what Jesus is saying, I came to set you free from that. The entitlement that gets tangled up with sin and anger gets unraveled as we look to Jesus. When you deify yourself, you feel entitled to say of someone and do of someone whatever you want as if you were God himself, herself, whatever your view is a God, right? In that space, what he's saying is you're, you're not actually God. You don't get to say to somebody about their value. You don't get to declare about them that they are a fool. You don't get to take their life. That actually belongs only to God. And it's out of the abundance of the heart that your mouth is speaking. And when it speaks these kinds of words, it reveals that you've dehumanized people and you've deified yourself. Hey, and Jesus died to set you free from that endless trap because that is a miserable place to do life, to do relationships, to live, to continue to see people that way doesn't actually elevate you. It isolates you. 
The reason why you're so angry and so miserable is not because it's working. It's because you keep consuming people, but they could never actually satisfy anyway. And you're pretending that you have some sort of power that you don't. And the bankruptcy is getting higher and higher and higher. The Jesus came to set us free, to put us on a path, not of consuming people, but of being reconciled to them. Not, not of judging people, but actually being able to forgive them and, and make things right with them is where he goes in this next section, right? So, so the root issue that it points to is actually the worship of self. That's the third point. What is the root issue this is pointing to? It points to this worship of self. And anger has a way of, of engaging with your heart, and it points to what you love, right? If anger is this emotion that says, this is wrong, and I want to protect, I want to help, I want to move towards right, anger shows you what you love. And you just follow that down the line, and what you love, you worship. And what you worship actually begins to change you. So stop where we were at the beginning and go, man, what is it that made you angry? And ask what kingdom is being violated in that moment. I hope on your list of anger there's stuff that violates the kingdom of God. There's stuff about justice and mercy for the nations. I hope that's on your list. But I bet if you're honest, the vast majority of your list is stuff that violates your kingdom. When these commodities and these people that are to be consumed, these people that you're comparing yourself with, when they don't do what you demand they do as God of this little universe of yourself, that's what infuriates you. Anger actually points to something that we love, and most of us in that moment are exposed, or we get a chance to see that what we love is ourselves. And we've put ourselves at the center. We've made ourselves actually God. This worship of self is the key issue here that he's dealing with, right? And, and I, I do that because he goes on to talk about worship and about being a judge. N- not by accident, right? The, the application or the reversal here is that you would actually worship differently. You would actually engage the heart of God in, in a different way. So he evokes these images of worship and, and of a judicial system to say, get yourself out of the seat of somebody who's actually on the altar and actually go move towards somebody and be reconciled to them. Get yourself out of the seat of somebody who's judging somebody else and actually move towards somebody else. Or actually make, the, make it right. They're judging you and you know you have the power to actually make things right. Go ahead and move towards them rather than trying to go to court and prove that you've been right all along. That will actually only end up in more and more destruction, he says. So, so that book that my friend talked about with anger, it comes out of this book called Untangling Our Emotions. And I was so compelled by our conversation, I actually downloaded it. And read the chapter on anger. And as I read this, would you keep in mind these themes of worship and judgment that Jesus goes after, right? He talks about being at the altar and going to court. Author of this book says this. He says, anger says that's wrong. It's a fundamentally moral emotion. In fact, you could say it is the moral emotion. When you are angry, what is happening inside is this. Your heart is observing a scene before you and crying out that something you love is being treated unjustly. Anger always passes judgment. And judgments, unlike a judgmental spirit, can be right as well as wrong. Anger at its best communicates protective love for what God loves because it delights deeply in the relationships and people and structures of justice, beauties of creation, the material blessings that God has given us. It targets anything that would divide us from God or from one another or anything that would destroy what is right, lovely, and fruitful. But at its worst, anger conveys unadulterated self-interest and ensues an ultimatum. 
It issues an ultimatum, obey my law and my will or suffer my wrath, anger says. Sinful anger still seizes the moral high ground, but in a high ground manufactured by our own sovereign preferences. Or when sinful anger is indeed going after some some real injustice, it does so because I don't like it and I will feel better when vengeance has been done. Make no mistake, the pull of anger is strong. Anger offers the intoxicating experience of playing God, of being lawgiver and judge and jury and ordering the world according to what I like. Ugly anger is utterly arrogant. What Jesus is aiming at is a freedom he wants to offer us from self-worship that could only end in destroying the relationships around us. And hey, you're really good at it. You're pretty crafty at it. You've learned how to use people in ways that they enjoy or ways that they actually benefit from or ways they're willing to trade using you as well. I totally get it, right? We, we have sophisticated ways of consuming people. Not everybody hates your guts. I get it. However, just stop and ask, is what's driving the relationship you putting yourself at the center in a deified way and seeing them as somehow less than human in a way that you could actually move towards them and take advantage of them. In this little book, Dallas Willard is talking about anger. It's, it's a book called, um, give me a second. It is, oh, dang it. It's a great book. I can see it in my mind. The, uh, maybe it doesn't even matter. I'll tell you later. I'll email you. I'll tell you later the book. Uh, it'll come to me in a moment. I can communicate. I'll go like, ah, oh, here's the book. But in, the, in this amazing book that maybe is lots of books that Dallas Willard has written, he, he says this, if my goal is to go to New York, one of the best ways to do that is to not go to Atlanta or London. And if I get to New York and that was always my goal, no one congratulates me for not going to Atlanta or London. They say, yeah, you wanted to come to New York, you got on a plane, you came to New York, it's pretty simple. That, that was the goal all along. And he says, if my goal is to love people well, a poor plan would be to just try not to hate them or try not to insult them. The goal should actually be seeing them the way God sees them. New York, in that illustration, my goal would actually see people the way God sees them, which is different than just not treating them poorly. He says it actually is a poor strategy to get to New York by saying, I'm not going to go to Atlanta and I'm not going to go to London. That actually isn't a good strategy to get you all the way to New York. You have to actually aim at New York. And in the way the the Puritans would talk about an expulsive power of a new affection, our hearts are transformed and changed into the image of Jesus by his sacrifice in such a way that we can see people not as commodities or things to borrow from or consume or compete with, but people made in his image. That the antidote to this kind of hatred is actually to see people the way God sees them, to see people in a way that actually draws you close to them as people made in the Imago Dei. Not just biting your tongue, not just not being a jerk and saying what you think, not snapping yourself with a rubber band, not counting to 10. That actually is a poor strategy to get you all the way to loving somebody. And so, friends, we get to a space where we say, man, I don't know if I can do that on my own. And Jesus says, that's exactly the point. You have to have a righteousness that exceeds that of the Pharisees, a righteousness that comes from the outside and changes you on the inside. Right? What some theologians would call like a contra conditional righteousness. Contrary to what is true, God gives you a righteousness that actually begins to change your heart. So what Jesus does is sets us free not to worship ourselves, 
but, but to worship God for who he is. And as we worship God for who he is, we get to see people for who they really are. And now we can move towards reconciliation, which is where he goes in this application to give us a vision of kingdom life and love. To say it's, it's more than just not being angry, more than not just being a jerk. What God's calling us to is to worship him and see him as the judge in our relationships so that we can actually trust and depend on. So real quick, some applications. First, humanize people. Don't reduce them down to their tweets, to their actions, to their platforms, to their ideas. Humanize them. There's a book our staff is reading called Rare Leadership. I've mentioned it a couple of times. And in it, he talks about how to stay relationally connected. And he uses this acronym CAKE, which I kind of like. A guy with my body type loves an acronym CAKE. And the first C is to be curious about them. To, to actually be curious about who this person is and actually engage with them. Saying, I, wonder, I wonder what's going on inside their heart. Not, I wonder what they're thinking so I can dismantle their argument, but I wonder what it's like to be them. I wonder what it's like to feel what they feel, to be curious about the other person. And then the A is to appreciate them. To so not just be curious and pass judgment, but to, to actually appreciate where they're coming from. Right? That, that's a way to stay relationally connected, humanize people. It's what you desperately want. You don't want to be just seen as what you do or what you can accomplish on the outside or what you say. You want to be seen for who you are. Right? Not reduced down to a smear sentence so so humanize people secondly name what you're angry about right we start at the beginning not just as a thought exercise but as a habit to go and what's happening inside what am i actually angry about because that will help you actually respond to your anger not respond in anger just stop and just give voice to it go I mean, what, what am i actually upset about and, and maybe in that space, you could follow that out and see what kingdom it's aligned with. What, what is the thing that you are angry about? What does it point to that you love? And which kingdom is that a part of? Is that angry about the injustice of the world? Or angry because your little kingdom of self has been thwarted and frustrated and made inconvenient? The entitlement that's tangled up in our hearts with pride gets unraveled as we look to Jesus. So follow your anger and let it expose what you actually love and then fourth just repent hey you don't have to hold on to that you don't have to keep going down that road you could actually stop right he says hey on your road towards court would you just stop and and be reconciled just stop and make things right just stop and actually own and repent you don't because you know it's not working christ and then maybe just grieve in the middle of that not in a way that would do penance, but in a way that was honest about what this last year has been like. Where, where you've crossed lines and seen people in dehumanizing ways. Would you just spend some time in grief and go, man, that cost me, that cost them. And would you actually just own for a little bit what happens when we give ourselves over to this dehumanizing outrage that is so common in our culture. And I don't know, church, like I, I don't read enough or watch enough or I'm not on social media enough but, but my hunch is there's not a whole lot of difference between the way the church has responded to COVID and the way people that don't claim to know Jesus has surely there would be some exceptions but, but I wonder on the whole is there a marked difference or have we kind of bought into this kingdom of self that everybody else is propagating and we've kind of kept going down this road where we can actually dehumanize people in our hearts with our words online in our relationships, right? Would you actually just grieve for a minute? And then lastly, remain hopeful. This is not aimed at your shame. It's aimed at your freedom. So all of this diagnosis is so that you would receive the sweet 
gracious new life that Christ actually came to purchase for you, right? Jesus died to deal with your anger. And he died to deal with his anger that you justly deserve in all of your injustice where you violated his kingdom. That's the good news of the gospel. He came to actually set you free from this dehumanizing pattern you have and all the wrath that you deserve from that. He actually died on the cross so that you don't have to pay the penalty for that. The Father poured out His anger on the Son on the cross so that you could actually be set free. This is a hopeful word. You're like, well, then why are you yelling at me? Well, I want you to see it. I want you to understand. I want you to actually engage it. This is good, good news that would actually set you free. It would actually lift your heart. It would change your gaze. It would alter your relationships. It would actually move your heart away from consuming people to being reconciled to them. That's exactly where Jesus goes that we'll focus on next week. Next week we'll go like, how do I be reconciled? What does it look like for me to actually leave my sacrifice on the altar and move towards somebody? How do I actually do that? And the good news is Christ has made it possible for you because of what he's accomplished on your behalf. So, So we take communion. We take communion every week because all of our hope centers on what Christ did on the cross. And this week we get a chance to just think about the fact that on the cross, Jesus dealt with the effects of our anger by absorbing the Father's anger on our behalf so that you could be set free. And there is a way that that sets a pattern for you of how you treat other people. And if Christ didn't hold our sins against us, then surely we shouldn't hold our other sins of other people against them and we begin to be transformed from the inside out. Hey, our culture is given over to outrage because it dehumanizes people and it deifies us. Flip that and humanize people, exalt Christ for who he is, and that will change your heart. And he died on a cross to make it possible and fulfill what he had promised to you. So if you're a follower of Jesus, I invite you to take that little cup. If you missed it, there's some in the front here and there's some in the back. The little wafer represents the broken body of Jesus and the little cup of juice represents his blood that was shed for your life. And as you take that this morning as a follower of Jesus, would you take it with the reminder that Jesus bore the weight of the anger of the Father that was righteous so you could be freed from all your unrighteous anger. If you're not a follower of Jesus, I'm so thankful that you're in the room. Communion is this celebration of our faith in Christ. So, so you wouldn't need to take communion. It wouldn't make sense. I, I totally get that. There's no pressure. On the back of your bulletin, there's some prayers, though, that would help you engage in this moment. So you don't have to just sit there. You could think of what we've talked about. But there's also some prayers there that would help you just kind of ask God to speak to you and ask kind of a way of wrestling. So to give you some examples of that. So don't take communion with us. But, but maybe I invite you to just take Jesus for the first time. And if that's you, man, come and let's talk after the service. I'd love to spend some time telling you what it means that Jesus came to give you a new heart and set you free. So let me just pray for us, and the band will come. We'll sing one more song, and then we'll go. Jesus, thank you for dying in our place. Thank you for making it possible for us to be forgiven and free. Thanks for freeing us from this outrage, for freeing us from these dehumanizing behaviors that we've cultivated for decades. Thanks for freeing us from the bankruptcy of consuming people. Thanks for freeing us from the entitlement that we feel that sets us up to harm others. Thanks for freeing us from judging others. Thanks that this little kingdom of self that we've created isn't all there is. You actually died to welcome us into your everlasting and eternal kingdom. And you did it in such a way that cost you. And you did it with joy. And you did it in such a way that our joy 
could match yours. So we say thanks. Help us now receive in this moment. Would you deal with our hearts and give us hope, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us online. Leewood Baptist Church exists to glorify God by making disciples of all nations. For more information about us and our ministry, please visit us at www.leewoodbaptist.com. Thank you.